You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. This week, we learn what it looks like to obey God's command to be transformed. Towards our own sin. It's, that's what he's making war with. That's, that's the whole point of his whole sermon. And, and it's based from um, Romans 8. 13, where it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So that's kind of the, the, the basis from where he's coming from. And I know that's over the top and, and that's kind of extreme and it was purposefully done that way so that maybe it can waken our hearts just a little bit about the real war that we're in about what is truly happening, not only inside of us, but all around us. As First John taught us that, right, that the world around us is controlled by Satan, and there is a true war happening. And the one little thing that he says, that oftentimes we think that we're, we, we live in a, in a peacetime mentality, and then when things kind of erupt around us, we, we don't understand what's going on. But if we truly understand what's going on in our hearts because of original sin and and then the war around us because of who is controlling that, Satan, that we are truly in a war. We are truly in this wartime mentality. Are we that serious about fighting sin? Are we that serious about putting off the flesh? Or, or, or have we been just giving in to the flesh and we live by the flesh and we don't worry about what the Bible says? That if we live by the flesh, we will surely die. That's a, that's a scary, scary comment. That's a scary part of Scripture. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the question is, and, and kind of coming off of the, our time together last week with looking at original sin, is the question is, how are you going to make war? Because see, this is happening. If you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, the purpose of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you is to change you from one glory to another. And the way that you're going to change is by putting off sin, stop living by the flesh, and start living by the Spirit and putting on what Christ has said you are, who he says you are, and all that he has done for you. Again, last week we, we looked at original sin. We looked at what's happening in every single one of our hearts. And I just want to say again and again and again, so that, that we don't think and we try to separate ourselves, that we think, oh, okay, whenever we look at original sin and we, we see those things that, oh, that's for those that are not born again. No, that's your hidden heart working all the time, right? We are saved, we are being saved, and one day we will be fully saved. One day that this hidden heart that's working, the effects of the original sin, it will no longer affect us, right? It will no longer have any control over us whatsoever. But in the meantime, we are sojourners in a world that doesn't belong to us. He's already made a world for us. That's what John 14 tells us. That we're just sojourners here, and, and, and as we live and move and as we depend on the Spirit, as we live our lives, as He's transforming us, that is to leak out onto other people 
to share the gospel with them, to show them who Christ is, to show them what God has done in our lives and in our hearts to change us and make, him, make us more like his son. Again, original sin, the fall, affects each and every human, born again or not. It affects us. This is what we're being saved from, right? It's one day we will be fully saved in the sense that, that the flesh will no longer affect us. Again, this is the, the default mode of our hearts. And it doesn't go away immediately. That's why it's, we, we call it progressive sanctification, that we progressively grow in Christ. We progressively live more and more by the Spirit and less and less by the flesh. We just stop and think about this. However long that, that you have lived without the Spirit of God in you, it doesn't matter if you're seven years old and, and God brought you to faith, or if you're 30 years old or 70 years old when God brought you to faith, it doesn't matter. That means that there's been years and years and years that we have trained ourselves and taught ourselves how to, how to cover and hide and stuff the hole that's missing. Millions and millions of moments of learning how to be good, because that's by far the easiest way to hide from God. This is what we've been trained to do. Now God, through His Spirit, is trying to untrain us. And thankfully, He gives us the Spirit. He gives us the Word of God. He gives us faith, a faith family to tap into and, and to help as iron sharpens iron. Now let me just quickly review what we said last week, and, and I'll go through it pretty quick. Original sin brings about three truths that we experience objectively and subjectively. It brings about three truths. In other words, the fall. What happened in, in, in Genesis chapter 3 has been brought forward, and that's what Romans 5 tells us. It always brought forward to every, each and every one of us. Every single one of us has ever been born or will be born. This is true of us. And the first truth that it has brought forward is, is that it brings death. Original sin brings death, both physical death and spiritual death. Both physical death and spiritual death. So now, physical death, we're still living, so that's not quite yet, right? That's whenever we take our last breath and our soul separates from the body that we're dwelling in now. And, and so that's the physical death. But what happened immediately, especially for Adam and Eve, and then for everyone else after that, is spiritual death. Objectively, what has happened? And the relational life with God is removed from the spirit of man. We still have a human spirit, but now I am alone. I was not made to be alone. Remember, God said it's not good more than just the man, but it's not good to, for man to be alone. I was made to always have an indwelling person with me. I was made to always have an indwelling person with me. Subjectively, what are we experiencing? We're experiencing existential loneliness. In other words, that, that we have this propensity to always feel like we're alone. That, that, that God, I, I know it's been used in many ways, some good, some bad, some differently, but, but we are designed that, that, that our hearts, our inner souls, needs to have the Spirit and us in there. The I that is Joe, the I that is you, and also the Holy Spirit dwell together. Well, the original fall takes out the Spirit. So now we're perpetually lonely. That's this subjective effect of original sin. I mean, that's the objective the subjective is, or yeah, the subjective is essential loneliness. We are alone. And the sin tendency is to stuff the hole with idols. 
is to stuff the hole with idols. That's what we do. That's our tendency. We saw this all through the Old Testament, right? God saves Israel, brings them through the Red Sea. What's the first thing they do while they're waiting for Moses to come down from talking to God? Oh, let's form an idol and we'll worship that idol. This is what's happening inside of our inner hearts. As we stuff the hole with the things of this world that the Bible would call idols. The fix for this was Pentecost. Right? When, when Pentecost came, the Holy Spirit came and it indwelled with, with people and humans and now this has been fixed. But the thing is, is we still tend, as we learn to live by the Spirit, as we learn to live in um, interactive with the Spirit, that we tend to stuff things in this hole that's been missing. The second truth that we found was inherent corruption. This is original righteousness that has been lost. Original righteousness has been lost in this inherited corruption. So if you stop and think about it, that, that as, as we were born, as Adam and Eve was born and the Holy Spirit's dwelling in them, that each person has a group of capacities. And each of these capacities before the fall was ordered by God's love. Now that the Holy Spirit has left us, they are no longer ordered by God's love, so now they're disordered. Right? So this is inherited corruption. That all our desires, all the things that we do, all our capacities is, is kind of like disordered a little bit. And some of them are disordered a lot. But they're all disordered. This is where they come up with a word that pervasive depravity. That's what that means, that all our capacities have been disordered because what orders them is the love of God which has been removed. That's objectively what has happened. That is the truth of what has happened. Subjectively, how do we deal with that? Well, that's shame. Remember Adam and Eve, they saw each other, they were naked and they were ashamed. It's this experience of self-awareness that something is wrong. Something is wrong with me, right? Something's, something's not right with me. And the tendency that we have is to cover is to cover. That's the sin tendency. We cover. What was the fix for this? It was Jesus' perfect life becomes the cover. We put on his robe of righteousness. That even though that we might still butt up against this idea that there's something wrong with me, there's something wrong with me, there's something wrong with me. Yes. But Jesus' robe of righteousness has come around you. His robe of righteousness now covers you and God sees you through that lens. He doesn't see you as, as you, all your mistakes and faults. He now, now sees you through Jesus' robe of righteousness. So you have death, the spiritual death, where, to, where we were meant to, to have someone live, dwelling with us, and then the, the hole is made whenever the Holy Spirit leaves. That's original sin, and it causes extent, existential loneliness, and then we start stuffing the hole. And then we know, we know, man, there's something wrong with us because our, our, our desires and our capacities are disordered a little bit. And we see there's, there's something just not right with me. There's something not right with me. So what do we do? We cover. We consistently cover and we cover and we cover. And what the gospel says is, no, you, you don't have to cover anymore. You don't have to feel shamed anymore. Jesus' perfect life and his robe of righteousness is now around you. It now covers you. You are now fully covered. And the third truth that we saw was inherit guilt. Because we are guilty, we experience God's judgment. 
Objectively, all humans have violated the righteousness of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us. We're all in the same boat there. And, and subjectively, what did they do? When God came into the garden, what did Adam and Eve do? Right? They dove for cover. They experienced fear. They were afraid. They hid themselves. Not only did, were they covering themselves because they knew something was wrong, but, but now they're hiding from God. Why, why would they hide from God? They never hid from God any other time. Why are they hiding from him? Well, it's because they know that they're guilty before him. And again, our sin tendency is to hide. The number one way to hide from God is to be a good person. It's the number one way to hide from him. If you want to get away from your guilt, what do we do? We tend to lean, lean into moralism. We tend to lean into being good people. In fact, most of the time, that's our defense. But I'm a good person. Anytime that we're evangelizing with people, many times it's, it's so hard. I mean, I can't go to my neighbor and say, look, let me tell you about this original sin. This is how bad you are. Right, that, that, that you're completely depraved. Uh, are they going, oh, thank you, Joe, for telling me that. No, they're not. The first defense up, what are they going to say? But, but I'm a good person, Joe. I don't need Jesus. I'm a good person. Right? I, I'm a good person. I don't, I don't need this Jesus dude that you're talking about. The sin tendency is to hide. And the number one way we hide is being a good person through moralism. And what is the fix? Obviously the fix is Jesus went to the cross to take my penalty. You're no longer guilty before the eyes of God because you're in Christ. He paid your penalty. Right? He, he paid the penalty that you needed to pay. You're no longer guilty. This is the Christian life. There, there should be so much freedom. If, if we understand what is happening inside of my heart, what's happening inside all the time, 24-7, this is, we're working this out. They were either trying to stuff the hole because we feel lonely, or we're trying to cover our shame because we know there's something wrong with us, or we're just hiding because we feel that we're guilty. If we know this, and we know the gospel, I mean, how does that change how you get up every day and walk through the day? As we're consistently reminding ourselves of who God is, what he has done, and who am I in light of that, and oh, by the way, how am I going to live in light of those three things? It's consistent. It's all through the Bible that gives us this great hope. This great hope. How he has fixed every human's problem. This is the object we are to make war on. Original sin. This is what we are to make war on. Paul would call this the flesh. And the flesh rightly defined is the weakness of human autonomy or the weakness of attempting to govern yourself. That's exactly, again, what has happened in the garden as they laid out what happened. The question in Genesis 3 is what? Did God really say that? No, I'm going to decide for myself. Right? I'm going to govern myself. I don't need the spirit. I don't need the word. I don't need the church, my brothers and sisters around me. I'll govern myself. That's exactly, it's sarks in, in, in the Greek, but that's exactly what it means. The weakness of human autonomy. In other words, if you're going to try to do this in your own strength, it just isn't going to work. What's going to happen is you're going to end up being some of those people that I described at the beginning of last week. You're, you're either going to be the guy, the person that's hearing the word today and say, I'm going to try harder. And, and you're going to leave here and you'll do that for a little while. 
And then all of a sudden, your, your I'm going to try harder becomes a burden. And then a little while longer, your I'm going to try harder, now you're frustrated. This Christian life thing, it just doesn't work. I don't know what they're talking about, it just doesn't work. Well, that's because you're living by the flesh. Because you're, you're trying to muster up your own strength. You're governing yourself instead of allowing the Spirit to govern it through His Word. That's what's happening. This is why we get frustrated. This is why we feel like the Christian walk is a burden. But there's help for that. And the question is that, that, that Piper started the day with and what Paul says all through Romans is, is how are we going to make war? How are we going to do this? Are we just going to knuckle down and, and try harder? Or are we going to see what this, the, the Bible says about making war? Do we use the flesh to make war on the flesh? Because if our default position, when we hear the word is, let's get to work, then that's exactly what we are doing. We're going to fight the flesh with the flesh, and we will lose every time. We will lose every time. Again, Romans 8, 13 tells us, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will die live. So that leads me to one question, my default question for everything. And, and I even go back to this question where a group of us did a, a study on the Holy Spirit. And one of the books we were reading is Keeping Step by the Spirit. And, and you know, we know that Paul says that and, and that we are to always be filled with the Spirit. And my question is, okay, everyone tells me why, but many people don't tell you how. How does this look? How does this work? Right? How does this work in Joe's life? And this is the, the product of some of these questions that I've been asking. We hinted at it last week, and I know that sometimes I, I try to stuff way too much in, in my 30 or 40 minutes with you guys, and, and I probably blew right past this, but how are we going to fight? We hinted at it last week. This is the Ephesians passage, and we will see it again in today's passage, which is Romans 12, 1 and 2. So let me read the Ephesians passage and get right into Romans passage. The Ephesians passage says this, and do not get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, that's the flesh, but be filled with the Spirit. And we quickly looked at that, but be filled with the Spirit. And we're gonna see the same wording, the same grammatical st structure here in Romans 12, one through two. Let me read that for us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we have this phrase in Ephesians, and now we have a phrase in Romans, and specifically in Romans 2. In Ephesians, we have to be filled with the Spirit, and here in Romans 12, 2, we have to be transformed. They both have the same grammatical structure. It's a present passive imperative. Now, that's, that's how the Greek uses their verb. They, they flush it out that way. So the present means the verb tense where the writer portrays an action in process or a state of being with no assessment of the action's completions. So in other words, that the verb tense is it's happening now. 
It's ongoing. That's the best way I understand it. It's, it's ongoing. In, in the passive voice, the passive voice signifies that the subject is being acted upon. So as I go, I'm being acted upon, and then the imperative is a command. Okay, wait a minute here. <laughs> That's where we get tripped up, isn't it? It's the passive part of it all. So he's, in Ephesians, he's given us a command to be filled with the Spirit, but we do so passively. Okay, Joe, how, how am I supposed to do that? How, how am I supposed to do that, Paul? And then also here, now he's given us a different command. Be transformed. Be transformed. It's in the same present passive imperative. It is a command to be changed in the passive voice. So as we live our lives, Paul is commanding us, or God is commanding us, to passively be changed. <laughs> how does that work? How does that work? Now, we're used to the present act of commands. We understand them, right? If I would say, Nate, grab your guitar and play us a song for us. He understands that. Or he knows, okay, I'm going to get up, I'm going to grab my guitar, I'm going to grab a song, and I'm going to play it for you. We get the active, but the passive thing, how, are we, how in the world are we supposed to do that? It's the passive part. What, what do we do? But both of these commands, both in Ephesians and also in Romans, they're in the passive voice. So what, again, are we to do with that? In the first case, in Ephesians 1, I'm commanded to allow the, the Holy Spirit to impact my life. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you need your effort in this, because he's given you a command, that means we must do something. Your effort in this is to allow the Holy Spirit to impact my life. That's, that's what's happening here. That's our job, that we put away the flesh so that the Spirit can speak to us, so the Spirit through his word can speak to us can impact my life, can change me. Now, now, that matches up well with Galatians 5, does it not? That the, I mean, we're not a very patient person. I'm not a very patient person. So how do I do that? Do I get some tips and tricks? Or maybe there's a way to step away and allow, I'm pretty sure that one of the fruits of the Spirit is patience. So I, I allow the Spirit to give us his fruit, to have his fruit work through us. And what many theologians say, and I agree with them, that this command, this idea that we are to allow the Holy Spirit to impact my life is sort of a meta-command. And when I say a meta-command, all I'm meaning is all the other commands in the Bible are colored by this command. Kind of like, you know, love, love, Love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's all about love. This command is a meta-command, meaning all the other commands in the Bible are colored by this command. So, Joe, love your wife as Christ loved the church. That is a command that I cannot do on my own. I can maybe try to find, you know, what psychologists say or psychiatrists say or people that's been in marriage for a long time and get some nice tricks and tips, and it will help. Absolutely it will help, right? It'll help. But for me to love my wife as Christ loved the church, knowing that Christ gave up everything 
for his church, which by the way is each one of you sitting here today, this is a command that I cannot do on my own. I need something. I need something to be able to do that. First, I need to, to put away the flesh because my flesh doesn't want to do that because, you know, this way we're designed, this is our original sin coming in. But what I can do is I can allow the Holy Spirit to impact my life by being open to allowing him to produce his fruit of love. His fruit of love, because that's the fruit of the Spirit is love. So this interaction is happening between you and the Spirit and you and God. Let me just give you another illustration that was kind of personal. Let's look, look at the Bible and, and see if God has done this, if, if he's commanded something and then given us the power to do it. Well, let's look at the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing um, them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's a, a command that we've been given for all churches to go and make disciples, to teach them to observe all that I have commanded. And man has, there, if you, you kind of Google that right now, you could come up with probably a million different ways to go and make disciples. <laughs> and many of them are man's thoughts on how to do this. Some of them have been wrought out by people gathering together and submitting themselves to the Spirit, and spending time in prayer, spending time in the Word, and asking them, okay, now how, can, how do you want this to look within Mountain City Church? How do you want this to look within whatever church you might be going? And then you have all those things that come out. Does He give us the power to do it? Is it just man thing? Do, do I just do this in my own Strength? No. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power, dunamis, dynamite, power, to do so. Not maybe power to do some extravagant you know, things. This is extravagant. I mean, the, the biggest miracle in the world is someone becoming born again. That's to me, is the, the biggest miracle in the world. But he gives us the power through the Spirit to do what we can't do on our own. That's his grace also. This is why Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. So we see that, that God gives us a command and he gives us the power through the Holy Spirit to actually fulfill those commands. It's just whether or not we, we step aside long enough, knowing that, that many times what, what is happening inside of us is what gets in the way is whatever we're, we're stuffing in to, to fill the loneliness or however we're covering ourselves or however we're hiding from whatever guilt that we're experiencing at the time, that if we can step aside and allow the Spirit to work He'll do amazing things through us and in us. Because that's specifically what, what Paul was talking about here. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I mean, this is the whole point of the new covenant. This is the whole point of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, God tells us he is making a new covenant, one where he will forgive sins and remember them no more. That's what Christ did. He's forgiven us our sins. You're no longer guilty anymore. Your sins are forgiven. The penalty was put on Christ. 
And in Ezekiel 36, he says this, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from the flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. So here it is, the Old Testament, where he's telling us that he's going to give us the spirit to help us obey and then he gives us a command in the Great Commission to go and make disciples, to teach them to obey or observe all that I have commanded. And then in Acts, he gives us the spirit that he promised here in Ezekiel so that we can obey those commands. So it seems to me that, that the, the whole process is about, okay, how do I get out of the way so the spirit can actually work in us and through us? Jesus did not forgive your sins so that you can keep the letter of the law, so you can go back to legalism, go back to moralism, go back to being good. He forgave your sins so that he can put his spirit in you. Why? Because a holy God cannot be anywhere near sin. So that's one thing that we need to remind ourselves. Whenever we're, we do feel that guilt coming over us, and, and, and what we want to do is, is we want to hide. We need to remind ourselves, wait a minute, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in me. Therefore, that I, at some level, I, I have to be cleansed in order for that to happen, because a just and holy God, the holy God that we sang about first, cannot dwell anywhere near sin. You're no longer guilty. You've been freed from that guilt. Christ did that for you. He did that for you. So the life of God, the love of God, can now help you keep the will of God. See, our hearts have capacities. We all have capacities. And because the Spirit has left, the love of God has left, they're all disordered. And now he's filled the hole with the Holy Spirit. Now he wants to start ordering those capacities. And that's a process. It's a process. It's a process for all of us. Sometimes, by the grace of God, he'll pick us up here and move us over here. <laughs> and we're like, hallelujah, thank you. But sometimes it's like three steps forward, two steps back. Three steps forward, two steps back. We'll get there. God promised us that we will get there. We will get there. So the Holy Spirit is the agent of change. Remember, we're, we're, we're coming off of that, be transformed. That's what Paul's saying, be transformed. That's a command. But the Holy Spirit is the agent of change. Our part is not passive. Our part is not fully active. Our part is interactive. We interact with the Spirit. We interact with the, the Word of God. As Calvin and Luther say, we participate in the new life. We participate in the new life. That's, that's what John says all the way through his, his gospel in the book of John. He's trying to present to you this new life. Will you, will you participate in it? Did you notice that nowhere in the book of John does it say repent? He just consistently puts out this new life. He tells us to believe, to believe, to believe. But he consistently puts this new life out before us. Participate in this new life. Will you step into this new life? This is what Paul is telling us in these two verses. Paul highlights the importance of dedication to God in both body and mind. 
Let me just reread them real quick. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we present our bodies as a sacrifice, and we renew our minds. That's the, the two things he's saying that we're going to do. We're going to present our bodies as a sacrifice. That's what I've been saying, that we, we're open to the Spirit to work through us and in us. And then we renew our minds. Now just a quick and important side note that whenever you read this verse, that the every you and your in here is plural. So not only is he speaking to Job, but he's speaking to everybody because he's speaking to the whole church. So that kind of changes the way you, you're looking at this, that this is a, a group project. <laughs> this is a group project. That's why he gave us a local faith family to do this with. It is a group project. Paul was appealing on a certain ground. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And what are those mercies? Chapters 1 through 11. You want to know what the mercies are that he's standing on, the ground that he's standing on, who God is, what he's done, and who you are in light of that? Chapters 1 through 11. It tells you all those three things. That's the ground that he's saying, by the mercies of God. Who is God? He's the creator. What has he done? He's, he's saved us. He's taken, out, taken us out of, the, of a, a life of slavery to sin and put us into a life of slavery to righteousness, right? That's who we are. We are his children. This is all found among many, many other things in, in the chapters 1 through 11. Because of who God is and what he has done and who I am, I should now present my body as a sacrifice. That's his argument. This is why we use those four questions so much. Because it's exactly how every epistle, which is telling us how to live out this life that Jesus bought us. How do we live it out? This is what the epistles tells us. This is how we are to live out this life. And they're all set up the same way. The first part of it tells us who God is. What has he done? Who am I in light of that? And then the second part of most of these epistles will go the other way and say, how am I to live? Four questions are the simplest hermeneutic that we can use as a group where everybody can grab a hold of, I think. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. 1 through 11, he told us who God is, what he has done, who am I in light of that, and now he's going to tell us how to live. And the first thing he tells us is to be transformed and all the by the way, that's a passive command. That's just hard to sometimes get your head around, but if you understand that that we are to live in such a way that we are yielding to the Spirit, that we are looking in our Word and reading our Word, using the different disciplines to, to open ourselves up to what the Spirit has, it does start to make sense. It does start to make sense. In other words, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. What we do is we yield our autonomy. We yield to it. We yield to the flesh. We yield our autonomy. It really helps to see the nature of this sacrifice by looking at the three adjectives that he has within this passage. In other words, that, that I'm no longer going to try to control things and to, and, and to do different. I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to give it to you, Lord. It's a first step. It's living 
holy, and pleasing. This is the three adjectives that he uses here. First, a living sacrifice is one that does not die by losing its blood. It is not burned up and consumed like regular sacrificial offerings, but it's like continues to endure. It's a continue living as you live, kind of like as you go make disciples, right? As you live. You and I are living sacrifices in the specific sense that we have been crucified with Christ, that's Romans 6, 6, and live as slaves of righteousness leading to holiness, that's Romans 6, 19. So, how do we give ourselves as a living sacrifice? We yield to our own autonomy. We, we, we let go control of our lives. We gotta let go of control. The second adjective he uses is holy. It's not in the sense of perfect, but set apart, devoted to God. That we are devoted to God, that, that everything that we do is devoted to God. Everything that we have, everything that we do, the relationships we have, the possessions we have, the time we have, it's devoted to God. We are believers who are called holy, that's Romans 1-7, because the Holy Spirit given to us, that's Romans 5-5, who is sanctifying us, which is Romans 15-16, and who empowers us for righteousness, joy, hope, and peace, which is Romans 14 and 15 again. So he's saying we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, set apart, devoted to God, so that we are pleasing to him that we are pleasing to God, which brings us around to our meta-command because Paul said in Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So how are we going to live a life? How are we going to give our bodies as a sacrifice in pleasing to God, right? We are not going to live by the flesh. We're not going to live by the flesh because the flesh cannot please God. We are to live by the, the Spirit. We are to live by the Spirit. As we live our lives each day as one who has been crucified with Christ, devoting all we do to His kingdom and His purpose, in the power and dependence of the Holy Spirit, this is our spiritual worship. Or as the NIV puts it, true and proper worship. We're to give the flesh, that, that part of us, over. We're to yield our autonomy. We're to give control over to God. Calvin says, the Lord had redeemed us for no other purpose than that we may consecrate, dedicate ourselves and all our members to him. The Lord had redeemed us for no other purpose than that we may consecrate, dedicate ourselves and all our members to him. So in order we to give our bodies as a living sacrifice, we are to renew our minds. We go back to original sin, inherited corruption, meaning that our thoughts are now disordered. Paul confirms this in Romans 1.21. He's going to confirm the fact that this idea that, that because of the love of God is no longer ordering our, our desires or our, um, our faculties, that one of them being our thoughts, he confirms this in Romans 1.21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So how do we get from disorder to order? Well, there's two parts to it. How do we renew our minds? 
How do we go from disorder to order? The first one is the Bible. That's why it's, we just ask that you read it. It's the Bible. This is how we renew our minds because we need to renew our minds with, with truth and, and the truth is found within Scripture. And, and in fact, it, it says that this is what Scripture's purpose is in, in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. For training in righteousness. Which sets us up for the second, which is repentance. So how do we renew our minds? First, we, we read our Bibles, we, we bring in the truth into our minds, and then we repent. The Hebrew word for repentance means to turn. In other words, we're, we're turning from the corrupted thinking, and we're gonna to turn to the word which is going to correct our thinking. Right? We're gonna turn from, from the flesh and turn to the spirit. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which literally means to change one's mind. But see, this is not a fickle thing. The way we might change our mind on something, then change it back again. In other words, we need to, sometimes I know that many times we, we see our sin and, and we know what the Word of God says. So, you know, the Spirit brings it up and, and we're convicted of the sin and, and we're like, man, I understand this and I don't want to do this anymore. And then a week later or Two weeks later, we, uh, we fall right back into it and we think, Did I just, didn't I just go through this <laughs> just a little bit ago? Didn't I just do this a little bit ago? So if we're truly repenting, yes, it's, it's about feeling sorrow. That's kind of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But it's more about if we're truly repenting, we're turning and then we're renewing our mind with the truth. We're renewing our mind with the truth. It's a transformation of outlook, an entirely new way of seeing. Biblically speaking, true repentance can only come about as a result of the inner work of the Holy Spirit. And it's crucial to see repentance isn't the cause of salvation. It's the fruit of it. When the Spirit brings us to faith in Christ, He convicts us of our sin, and the fruit of that conviction is repentance. Because, see, the, the, the Spirit comes in, he, he fills that heart, that hole in our hearts. And then we can see differently. And then the word, of life, the, the word of God comes alive for us. He convicts us of sin. And the fruit of that conviction is repentance. Repentance then shows that our faith in Christ is genuine. We turn around. We go in the opposite direction. Just like Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man? Zacchaeus, a tax collector who would set the tax rate according to how much he wanted to make personally. Remember, that's, that's why tax collectors were always hated, because there was always a little bit extra in there for them. They were usually, most of the time, one of the richest people within a village, because they're always taking a little extra for them. But after meeting Jesus, what does he say? Behold, the Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. See, his mind has been completely changed. He has turned from his ways and now is doing the ways of the Lord. And just to be clear, repentance is, a, is not a one-time deal. It's like, oh, I repented, I'm, I'm good. No, it's ongoing. It's something we do once. It's not something that we do once at the beginning of our Christian lives and then move on from it. It's a daily discipline. It's a way of life. 
Martin Luther said, our God, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said, repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. We're never so free of sin that we can be free of repentance. We're never so free. We're, we're in this war. We're in this war. But we're in a war that we know that's already been won. But we're in this war. See, repentance is not meant to keep us in a place of shame and guilt. It's not. It's, it's this idea that, that we should, if, we, if we sin, we need to run to the cross, not away from the cross. We're running away from the cross is because we're covering and hiding. We're covering and hiding. No, we need to run to the cross because you're already forgiven. Your, your shame's already covered. You could come out of hiding. Christ took the penalty for you. It's already done. It's already done. We can come out of hiding. So if you have to repent of sin, there should be, okay, yeah, you're going to feel sorrow for it. But if, you got, if I could go to my brother Nate and say, Nate, this is what I'm struggling with, then the, the repentance is bringing us out of shame and guilt. It shouldn't cause more shame and guilt. If it's causing more shame and guilt, then, then we have the gospel mixed up in our head. <laughs> and most likely what we're doing is, is we're feeling the shame and guilt because we're, I don't want Nate to think I'm not a good person. Because really how we're living is, is moralist. Christ came to set you free. He came to set us all free. When we cover and hide and stuff the hole, we are disobeying the first command in this passage. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. But if we allow the Spirit to impact our lives, allow Him to show us what things we need to renew our minds about through repentance, we will discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Or as Piper says it, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to make war. Can we pray? Father, I thank you so much for your word, Lord. Father, I just pray that you would help us see your love, what Christ has done for us, who we are in that, I pray that we, we see that, that we need to participate with the Spirit that dwells in us. That He's working, always. It's just whether or not we're paying attention. Do we trust the gospel to come out of hiding? Do we trust the gospel to stop covering? Do we trust all the promises that he's given us that we will never be lonely again? Help us. Help us today to do so more and more. Give us a desire for your word so we may renew our minds 
so that we may hear from you and to do your will. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.